According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. One of the most famous Christmas passages ever. Not really. If you've been here for any length of time, you realize we are not a liturgical kind of church, and we don't typically follow the Advent calendar or uh, deliver typical holiday sermons. And so uh, I'm excited about this one. In fact, Hebrews chapter 3 should be marvelous as we uh, fix our eyes on Jesus and consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, being faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. And uh, there will be a Christmas connection at some point before we dismiss here today. I'm just not sure what it might be yet, but it will happen. I trust in the Lord to do that. He's never let me down once, even in the legendary and now infamous 2002, whereby the Christmas message was Revelation 17, the whore of Babylon, that uh, so happened to coincide on that particular year. Having survived that, every Christmas gets easier. (laughs) Therefore, brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Amen? You and I are a heavenly people. We are neither Jew nor Gentile. We are a new creation in Christ. In fact, there's teaching coming up in January about in Christ and all the blessings that happen because of our union with Christ. And so I'll give you a little teaser today, but this is what's coming up on Sunday night, January 7th. Looking forward to that. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, being faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also, in all his house. So uh, we've got a lot to cover here. We've done a lot of it with just some fine-tuning, I think, and then we'll be ready to move on to verses 3 and 4. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and assure that we are filled with the Spirit, that we are humble to receive the word implanted shall we pray? Almighty Father, I do rejoice in your faithfulness and the faithfulness of your plan. I thank you that in your faithfulness we have once again the occasion to assemble together. And here we are, Father, this is your grace provision. And we've come together this morning to rightly divide the word of truth, to study, to show ourselves approved before your face, workmen needing not to be ashamed. And Father, I thank you that as we study this morning, uh, the benefit from this message is not upon uh, us and how smart we are to figure these things out, but it's how faithful you are in the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to, uh, to teach us, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, to take us into all things, even the deep things of God. And Hebrews gets deep, Father, and yet you make it so simple. You open our eyes and you show us what we need. And I thank you for that. So bless our time of study today. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so as we reference this, I want (coughs) to just jump ahead here. We've already covered verse one and the uh, expression here that not only pinpoints uh, the readers as being believers, the people that try to convince me that, that Hebrews was written to unbelievers are out of their mind. Hebrews is written to believers, yeah, exhorting them to not fall away. 
in, uh, and we've gone through that several times. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Not only does this describe believers, it describes church age believers. It describes born again believers in our dispensation. Those that are saved after Pentecost, those that are saved before the rapture, those that are baptized into union with Christ. Those are the only believers that are positionally in Christ, that are positionally seated at the right hand of God, even as Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. So uh, Old Testament saints, Moses and Noah and David and all those guys, great heroes of faith, all of them believers, none of them in Christ. None of them are partakers of a heavenly calling as we are, all right? And we want to be clear on this because we have a a contrast being drawn here between Moses and Jesus. And we got to recognize that contrast is there for a reason. And it's one of proportion. And the proportion is important in some ways, and the proportion is entirely irrelevant in other ways. And that's what we have to uh, break down here this morning, not only in verses uh, uh, you know, 1 through 4 or 1 through 5, but then beyond that when we get to the exhortation of chapter 2. We want to understand what faithfulness is all about and how Christ was infinitely faithful in what He achieved. Anyway, the, the bride of Christ, we are uniquely suited to consider Jesus. Uh, Old Testament saints could anticipate Jesus, they could anticipate the Christ, but they cannot consider Him as we do. And in those considerations, in those considerations, we are considering everything that went into preparing Him, in other words, from the foundation of the world and all the times past, what led up to to the virgin in the manger? I mean, what led up to the Word becoming flesh? There was a lot that prepared the way for the coming of the Christ. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in many portions in many ways, in the last of these days has spoken to us in His Son. That's how Hebrews begins. And we don't ever want to lose sight that God poured a whole ton of work into preparing for Christ to come and do His work. Now that that has been achieved, what is Jesus presently doing? So considering everything that went into preparing Him, think about His present office. He presently is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And I can't stress that enough. It's the present tense that gets emphasized here in chapter 2. It gets emphasized in verse 1. It gets emphasized in verse 2 where he's being faithful. It gets emphasized again in verse 5. It gets emphasized again and again uh, in verse 6 for us whose house we presently are. Or which house? We you, me, all of us, we presently are the house of God. If, okay? And if you were here last hour, you thought we were done with our if studies. Guess what? (laughs) If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. All right? So we got to deal with that. But it's all present tense. Consider the present tense nature of Christ as head of the church. Presently head of the church. And I know I've said this before, but I just want to stress it again. Um, Because we've all had bosses with titles and we wonder why, (laughs) right? We have a supervisor, we have a boss, we have somebody in our company where we work and they've got a fancy title and we're not exactly sure why or what that title is for or what that person even does, all right? And, And sadly, this is, I think, kind of the mindset many Christians fall into. They're happy to give Jesus lip service as head of the church. And they'll say, oh, they'll be happy to say, oh yeah, Christ is head of the church. But they never 
act, they don't live that way. They don't live their Christian walk as if Jesus truly is the apostle and high priest of their confession. That he's walking in the midst of this lampstand. That he's holding the star in his right hand. That Jesus is actively engaged in ministry today. Right? They get this idea that, okay, he's head of the church, but he's basically not doing anything. He's, he's up in heaven. His feet are up, propped up like in a recliner. Um, the Father said, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And they think Jesus already has that footstool, that his feet are already propped up, that he's doing nothing right here and now. And Jesus is so active. He knows his own. His own know him. He's the great shepherd, the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. He walks in the midst of every lampstand. He opens doors no man can shut. He closes doors no man can open. Jesus is busy as anything at the Father's right hand. He's interceding for you and for me all day long, okay? <laughs> I know when it comes to me anyway, that keeps him busy. And probably for many of us, all right? And so we want to we consider that because we are believer priests. And the book of Hebrews is, is showing what we do as believer priests all day, every day in functioning in our priesthood. And we never forget the fact that we enter into the veil, which is his flesh, that we serve in our priesthood with him as our great high priest. And that's, uh, that's the big point here in Hebrews. So consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, verse two, being faithful. The participle of being is present tense, being faithful. I know it says, if you have a New American Standard like I'm reading from, it might say he was faithful. And when it says he was faithful, that kind of throws us back to the good old days, right? Back to 2,000 years ago when he was, you know, around, when he was walking on water and doing all that stuff. And, and we can get that picture that, well, you know, he was faithful back in the day. And, and of course he was, I'm not going to dispute that, but that's not what this verse says. This verse says he's being faithful right here, right now. He's being faithful contemporaneous with me considering him being faithful right here, right now. So being faithful, present tense, to him who appointed him. To him who appointed him. If somebody appoints you to something, who do you work for? (laughs) Right? If somebody enlists you as a soldier, don't you want to be pleasing to the one that enlisted you as a soldier? Scripture says that. And so he who appointed him, this is the Father, The father said, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the son is being faithful to he who appointed him. Even as Moses was, and that's that's fair to use Moses as a was back in his day, in all his house. Now keep in mind, Moses is a was, Jesus is an is, okay? And there's a difference between the house Moses was faithful in, faithful as a servant, and the house Jesus is faithful in, faithful as a son. And I'm not going to let you leave here today until you understand this. <laughs> All right? So I'm going to teach it. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to quiz you on your way out. <laughs> and if you're uh, still fuzzy on the issue, I'll t- turn you around and make you sit down again, and we'll teach it all over again. All right. Being a faithful one to the appointing one. This, is, this was last week. Being a faithful one to the appointing one is a present tense reality for the apostle and a high priest of our confession. We don't consider now how he was faithful back then. We consider him presently being the faithful one. And there's a whole ton of scripture that says faithful is he. Faithful is he who calls you. Faithful is he. He is presently 
faithful. He won't test you beyond that which you're able to bear. Why not? Because God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear. Anyway, many, many scriptures there. Moving on. Moses' faithfulness was affirmed by God in the law in a context that spotlighted Moses' unique place in the entire Old Testament. There was nobody like Moses in the Old Testament. Samuel probably came the closest, and even Samuel was not like Moses. All right? There was a prophecy that said a prophet will come like Moses someday. And, and that prophecy kept unfulfilled until Jesus arrived in, uh, in his hypostatic union in his first advent. There was never another prophet like Moses after Moses until Jesus walked this earth. And so uh, this, uh, we want to be solid on this. And I ran out of time before we could finish this, but I want to at least remind us of what Numbers 12.7 says, because really the, uh, it's not a, maybe a word-for-word quote, but clearly an allusion in Hebrews 3 to Numbers 12. And, uh, and so it's, it's worth seeing it in the original book of Numbers. And then we got to see the other places where the identification of Moses with Christ is in- inescapable. Moses was a type of Christ, and he was a type of Christ in the offices of prophet, priest, and king, all right, in, uh, in, in lots of ways. And uh, we'll, we'll discuss those here this morning also. But in Numbers 12, 7, with a context that backs up a little bit, um, with some mumbling, okay, and uh, or I guess murmuring, um, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. And you think, wow, thanks a lot. <laughs> my own brother, my own sister are not supportive of my ministry here. This is a problem. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. Or he married a Cushite woman. So they're not approving of this marriage. Anyway, and so they're going to grumble and they're going to say, you know, who does Moses think he is? Uh, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And so there's a little bit of, uh, you know, bitterness, maybe some jealousy, whatnot. Aaron's the high priest, but he's no Moses, okay? Aaron, uh, Miriam is, has all the tambourines and dancing and music and the women and that, but she's not a Moses, okay? And the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And some of the Bible skeptics think Moses couldn't have written that. <laughs> but I think only the most humble man on the face of the earth could write that and be true as he wrote it, see? Anyway, of course, Moses is the author of Numbers. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam, and they both come forward. Now this was not normal for Aaron and Miriam. Typically when the cloud comes down, that's, that's Moses only. Okay, But here Aaron and Miriam are getting a, a face-to-face. And so he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision, I shall speak to him in a dream. In other words, this is what's going to be normal in the coming years for Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and those kind of guys. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Okay? Now this is the verse that gets brought into Hebrews for the application there. So we want to pay attention to it. What is this house he's talking about? What is Moses' role that he's talking about? What is it Moses was called to do in this day? With him I shall speak mouth to mouth or face to face, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? And so the anger of the Lord burned against them and the uh, 
Here's her consequences. Miriam was leprous. All right, well, anyway, there's more on that. So Moses is unique, and God says Moses is unique. God says that no one else is going to have a ministry quite like that. Other prophets will come, but they're going to be, they're going to be inferior to Moses, see, until he promises there is coming a prophet like unto Moses, see. And so we'll deal with that in Deuteronomy 18. Moses was a type of Christ with specific connection to his office as prophet, priest, and king. We talk about Jesus and his anointing as prophet, priest, and king. And we see in these offices, interestingly enough, Jesus um, was eligible for these offices but did not exercise them in his first advent other than prophet, right? He served as a prophet in his first advent ministry. He would stand and say, thus saith the Lord. He would speak on behalf of the Father. But when did Jesus have a priestly function? In, uh, in the Gospels, right? Never did until he went to the cross. Until he went to the cross. In, in terms of the Levitical priesthood, he had no priestly function whatsoever anywhere in the Gospel record. Even when the veil was written too, he didn't go in there. He had no role in the Levitical temple of Jerusalem of that day. His priesthood was a Melchizedek priesthood that uh, he first exercised on the cross. I want to be clear on that. And likewise, as a king, he was entitled to it. He was the heir to the Davidic throne. And there were people that tried to make him king, and he wouldn't let him do that. He never even claimed the title until it was painted on a sign and hung over his head when he was on the cross. And so, yes, prophet, priest, and king, but sort of, right? Prophet clearly, priest, eh, king, eh. Okay, and realize I just described Moses as well. Okay, prophet, priest, and clean king. Clearly a prophet. No question Moses was a prophet, standing and saying, Thus saith the Lord, and doing prophet kind of stuff. But king, well, never had a title, never had an office, never wore a crown. Unquestionably, he was the dictator, he was the political leader that told every tribal prince what for? Okay. You know, you tribes are here, you tribes are there. He, he put them all where they belonged and every tribal prince did what Moses told him. Okay. And so king, but eh, not formally, not invested in the office. And how about priest? Eh. And that was by his own failure that he bailed on it in fear and, and Aaron got it. See, And so he ends up surrendering the priestly office to Aaron. And so Aaron becomes the great high priest. Moses and his children are simply counted as Levites. Every Moses offspring is simply a Levite, not a priest. And, uh, and yet, here he is working hand in hand with Aaron and Moses does a lot of sacrifices, but he's not a priest or, well, he is a priest, but eh. Okay. And so these offices of prophet, priest, and king, not only does Moses typify them with perfection? He even does so when it's not exactly technically true. Not exactly technically a king. Same thing with Jesus. Well, he is a king, but he's waiting for second advent before he takes the throne. And well, he is a priest, but he is not going to function in a priestly capacity until he goes to the cross and does the work of redemption if all that makes any sense. All right, uh, join me in Deuteronomy 18 then. Deuteronomy 18. So in Numbers we said, hey, 
you got other prophets on the way, but none of them are going to be like Moses, right? Now in Deuteronomy, he says, okay, there actually will be one on the way who will be not only like Moses, but greater. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is in according uh, to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. Because see, they had a failure moment. The nation of Israel had a failure moment. They wanted Moses. They said, well, you be our, you be our mediator. You go up there you tell, and just come back and tell us what he said. And so when they could have been a nation of priests, they, they uh, didn't want it. They were afraid. And so there's a consequence, all right? And so now Moses says, all right then, a prophet like me is on the way and you're going to listen to him, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so the Lord said to me, verse 17, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet like, uh, from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And of course, Jesus Christ is the criteria for life and death, heaven and hell. Reject the message of Christ and there's no alternative. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Anyway, this is the prophet. And it's a powerful promise. It's a powerful prophecy. It points ahead to Christ. The book of Acts makes it very clear. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So if some Muslim tries to tell you that, oh, Moses was talking about Muhammad, all right, wrong. Moses was not talking about Muhammad. Muhammad was not a prophet like Moses anyway. And uh, the book of Acts tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of, uh, of this. So that's the office as a prophet. Also in Deuteronomy, we've got Deuteronomy 34.10. Here's where Moses is uh, getting ready to die. In fact, Moses does die. I think uh, Joshua pens the final verses to uh, wrap up the Pentateuch and then writes his own book. But um, So Moses dies. Notice uh, verse 5, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. Remember, Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus is faithful as a son. Opposite Beth Peor, no man knows his burial place to this day. God buried him himself, so it doesn't become a Mecca, a pilgrimage site, a place of idolatry. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated. Can you imagine that? Full uh, youthful health, even to the age of 120. And so the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning came to an end. So Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. The sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And we, this is what we want to think about, this face-to-face relationship. Moses was unique. In the Old Testament, in that face-to-face relationship. Likewise, Jesus is unique in the New Testament with that face-to-face relationship with the Father. That His is the final message in Hebrews chapter 1. And these are the two things 
we've got to take away from this. Moses was face to face and Jesus came straight from the Father. All right. How about a, a priest? 1 Samuel 2.35. 1 Samuel. And like I say, if there was someone that came close to Moses, it would be Samuel. And then maybe thirdly, Ezra after the captivity. But Samuel... And it's interesting here too because this is now, um, remember the, the, the judge's period is, is, is horrendous. Up and down, back and forth, in and out of fellowship, uh, pleasing God, not pleasing God. He'd send them a judge and they'd do okay for, until the judge died and then they're back into idolatry again. Just a miserable, miserable uh, part of Israel's history here. And in this it comes the, the, really the miraculous birth of Samuel. His mother was barren, couldn't have a child, and was praying for a child, and dedicated the child to the temple. And God gave her the child, and and this is this is Samuel now. And so Samuel grows up in the temple, and these priests are horrible. Okay, uh, Eli's a wreck. Hophni and Phineas are, are. I mean, these guys are just horrible. So, um, this is the background then for First Samuel chapter two, and. Um, Verse 31 says, days are coming. And so it's a prophecy of the future about cutting off and distress and these things. And um, verse uh, 34, this will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day, both of them will die. So what are the odds of that? Well, when it happens, short-term prophecy, then you've got the guarantee of the long-term prophecy. What he's talking about that's going to happen centuries later, we're guaranteed. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. All right, so here's the office of priest, okay? Now, in the Old Testament, they might be considering that the prophet would be one guy, the priest could be the same guy, the king could be a different guy, because king and priest can't be the same guy until they learn that king and priest is the same guy with Jesus Christ, who's going to reconcile the office of priest and the office of king. Anyway, so it's a prophecy of the coming of our Savior, and it agrees with Psalm 110, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Not a Levitical priest, a Melchizedek priest. That's important as well. And then finally, king. Before I turn out of this chapter, just make a little note there. There's a priesthood and there's a house, okay? We have a link in a house terminology with a priestly function. All right, First Chronicles 17. Say, not fair? I don't know where Chronicles is. Who turns to Chronicles? First Chronicles. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Got it? Get to Ezra and Nehemiah, you've gone too far. First Chronicles 17. I know, most of you have glass or tapping fingers on glass instead of flipping paper. First Chronicles 17. David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? Okay, house terminology that you have brought me thus far. This was a small thing in your sight, eyes, O God, but you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. 
and have regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David still say to you concerning the honor bestowed on your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord, for your servant's sake and for your own heart, you have wrought all this greatness to make known all these great things. What am I reading? Oh, I should be reading 11 through 15. All right, let me back up. Those are good verses, but it wasn't getting me where I wanted to go. All right, this is where I wanted to go. And so uh, here's David. All right, here we go. (laughs) Verse 7, my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the the sheep to be leader over my people Israel. What great preparation, right? Perfectly suited to be a shepherd, to be a king. And I've been with you wherever you've gone. Verse 8, I've cut off your enemies. I will make you, make you a name like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. That's never been fulfilled, not yet. Okay, will be. Um, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. They will plant them. They may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them anymore as formerly. All right. Verse uh, 10, moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. So here's the house terminology. When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, I will set up one of your seed, one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And this is a fun prophecy because we can read this and think Solomon, and we can read this and think Jesus. Okay, we can read this twice and think both. I will be his father and he shall be my son. I will not take away my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. And so according to all these words, according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. All right, so we got Moses as a type of Christ with specific connections to his office as prophet, priest, and king. So when we're back in Hebrews 3 now and we have terminology like Moses and we have terminology like house, what should we be thinking? What should we be thinking in terms of this house terminology? Are we thinking about a household? Are we thinking about a uh, dynasty? Are we thinking about a throne, a king on a throne and a lineage that comes from him? Or are we thinking specifically about the priesthood? When we're speaking about the house as the house of God, as the house of worship, as the house of priestly service. Answer, gave it away. That's what we're talking about. It's his priestly function. So house can reference a domicile, right? A building, you know, the the brick house with a picket fence or whatever, front yard, backyard. We call that a house, all right? Uh, and and the, the Greek can apply that, or Hebrew can talk about a house. Or we can also talk about an immediate family, an extended family. That would be your household, right? We still use the same word house to reference your wife, your children, your servants. That's your house. The, the people of your house are your household. In English, we tend to use household, but Greek and Hebrew would just use house to reference the people that live there. Or even beyond that, if it's a royal house, then it's your dynasty. It's a royal house. Think about the house of Windsor. Think about the house of York, the house of Lancaster, the house of Usher. What, you know, we've got houses over the years, right? 
Is that what we're talking about with Moses? What house did Moses serve in? Okay. And then fundamentally, I mean, he didn't even, although he had a tremendous impact in the priestly service, he anointed the high priest, his brother, he anointed all the priesthood, he uh, directed the, the construction of the furnishings and the, and the uniforms, the, the garments, uh, the, the tabernacle and all that. That's the house that he served in. The house of God was the tabernacle. All right. Finally, so uh, a house can refer to a domicile, an immediate or extended family, a dynasty, or the final use and the one that applies here in Hebrews, the term house can apply to a priestly worship center. Can apply to a priestly worship center. All throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. By the way, not just for God. False gods, pagan gods. In a, at one point, Philistines captured the ark. And where did they take it? Into the house of Dagon. Why was it called a house? Okay? It was a temple. It was a holy place. It was a center for priestly service. It's called a house. And there's others, uh, pagan houses in the Old Testament to false gods. All right, But most commonly, we're talking hundreds of times, house, the house of God is the temple. Starts with the tabernacle, eventually becomes Solomon's temple. So the house of Moses' faithfulness was the tabernacle. Just get that down and understand that. The house of Moses' faithfulness was the tabernacle. And we've got to relate that to what, what was the house Jesus was faithful in? What is, not, not was, but is. What is the house today that Jesus is faithful in as a son? Because it's the same house which we are as the, the bride of Christ, okay? It's not the tabernacle, it's not the temple. But it's, a, it's, an analog, it's analogous, analogous, okay? It's our priestly service is what it comes down to, not our salvation. Moses' housework, okay? We know what housework is, right? <laughs> All right, preach it. Housework. It's the stuff you do in your house, Okay? We get that. It's laundry, it's dishes, it's dumping the trash, making the bed, dusting, it's, it's housework, okay? If we're talking about that kind of house, okay? What's the housework in other kinds of houses, <laughs> okay? Maybe that's more fun. Um, housework in a dynasty? I still don't know. I mean, it just kind of seems like Prince Charles just goes around places and, you know, makes speeches and dedicates stuff and it seems like the most important thing to do in that kind of a house is to have babies to carry on the dynasty. And uh, once you've accomplished that, then I guess your housework is done. Um, how about uh, the house that you have to do uh, the housework in, um, well, in the priestly worship center, okay? What is your spiritual service of worship? What is your housework in the temple of God? Thinking, of course, that we are the temple of God, Right? Moses had a tabernacle, Solomon had a temple. What do we have? We have us. We are the temple of God. And we have housework. Our housework in us, in this temple, is our spiritual worship of service. It's our priestly function. And that's what Hebrews is all about. What we do in our priestly function. It's not about going to heaven or losing your salvation or keeping your salvation or proving that you were saved to begin with. None of that. It has to do with being qualified or disqualified to function as a priest, either clean or unclean, okay? 
And so we'll see it here. Stay tuned, because this is going to come back again. Moses' housework spotlights his priestly service, and it has no reference whatsoever to his salvation. Does anyone doubt Moses was saved? Clearly Moses was saved. Uh, has no reference to his salvation, has no reference to regeneration, eternal life, any of that. Moses was born again. We know that. He stood at the transfiguration. Uh, they got a preview of him in the millennium. Moses died. He will rise again in the millennium as a believer. But this, this statement of his faithfulness has nothing to do with him being saved. Just as the warning passages in Hebrews have nothing whatsoever about us being saved. Being saved is a given. Everybody in Hebrews is saved. The question is, are we going to walk by faith and enter into the land of rest? Are we going to have faith rest today, which we are supposed to have? And so that's what we deal with. All right. Verse 3. Ooh, that wasn't supposed to all come up at once. It came up all at once. Oh, I hate it when it does that. All right. Don't read the second point. <laughs> don't, don't read either point. I'm going to get ahead of me there. Let's look at verse 3. <laughs> All right. Being faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house, for. All right. He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why was Jesus more glorious? Because Jesus was more faithful? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Oh, because they were both faithful. Moses was faithful. Jesus was faithful. And this text is not telling us that Jesus was more faithful or infinitely more faithful or whatever degree, right? We want to do that. You and I, we want to do that. We want to, we want to play a, a game of legalism whereby we have a relative scale that whoever is more faithful than the other, well, better than the next guy, and that's, you know, like God grades on a curve or something. And I'm going to go to the judgment seat of Christ. I've got, I'm just rubbing my hands thinking, man, I got a whole pile waiting on me because I know a whole lot of other chumps that I think I'm better than. Okay? has nothing to do with any of that. All right? God's not grading on a curve, and, and I'm not going to get rewarded for being better than a bunch of other folks or worse than a whole bunch of other folks that I conveniently don't pay attention to. Okay? There's a long line of people far better than I'll ever be. But I don't think about those guys when I'm trying to be boastful. None of us do. That's not how carnality works. Thankfully, though, judgment is not on a curve. It's not relative. It's absolute. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed on my account. It's all grace. Okay? So let's talk about this. Now, all right, I'll Jesus has been counted infinitely more worthy of glory than Moses, but not by virtue of proportional comparisons of faith. Understand that. It is not by virtue of proportional comparisons of faith. The verse here says, you know what? It's a, it's a builder and house thing. As long as he uses the house as his metaphor, he sticks with the house as a metaphor and says, hey, guess what? The builder gets more glory than the house. Is it, it's a beautiful house. Does the house get credit for that? Who built it? Okay. You know, somebody that knows what he's doing, that spends all this time doing it, is going to have a pretty house when it's all said and done. I'm not looking anywhere. All right. 
We have home builders here. I'm not one of them. If I was building a house, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, Sharon wouldn't live there. All right. If, if it had a roof, it would leak. I'm suspicious it wouldn't even have a roof. I don't know how to put a roof on something. All right. It's not by virtue of proportional comparisons of faith. It's not saying, because obviously now you can draw a contrast. Moses blew it at the end. Moses died, was not allowed to enter the promised land. That's clear. And Jesus didn't blow it at the end, thank God. Jesus went to the cross. Moses was ready to kill those people. And Jesus went to the cross to die for those people. But that's not why Jesus receives more glory. Jesus is infinitely more glory by virtue of his achievements as the builder. The fact is God came and did what man could not do. The builder came, identified with us, and did what we could not do. So Jesus is infinitely more worthy of glory by virtue of his achievements as builder. That's what gets stressed here in verse 3. Just so much as the builder of the house is more honor than the house. Credit goes to the builder. He did it. He knew what he was doing and he did it. The house, does he get the glory? The house is what God done. All right. And in a couple of passages in Isaiah, I think illustrate this. And I love it because I, I am a, I'm not a tool person. But in Acts 10, I'm not Acts, Isaiah 10, in Isaiah 10 and verse 15, it tells you that axes and hammers and these kind of tools, they can't brag. If you're a tool in the hands of God, what are you bragging about? Okay, it's the hand that wields the tool that can brag, not the tool. So Isaiah 10, 15 and Isaiah 45, 9. Isaiah 10, 15. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Okay, you know. If the, if the chopper is very skilled and knows what he's doing, he can get a lot done. If the chopper is, is not so skilled and kind of uncomfortable holding a tool in the first place, uh, he's not going to get a lot done. He'll get a little bit done and then he'll get blisters and he, he won't like the rest of it. How about the saw? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? Does the saw get the glory? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it. Or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. And so if you're a tool in God's hands, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're a tool in God's hands. And to me this is just a beautiful thing. Only because I've observed that people who do use tools will occasionally um, blame those tools for things that don't quite come out. (laughs) Right? And they'll kind of explain in a certain way, well, I kind of meant this. But I kind of, well, it wasn't exactly as sharp as it should have been, or I kind of, I, I was using the wrong tool, and I thought I could make it work, or whatever. I, I, ha, I have known, I mean, Gary was great with it. He's in heaven now, so I'll tell Gary stories. Gary Williams would constantly explain why, had he had a different tool, it would have looked different. All right, that's fine, whatever, okay? But praise God even though he uses these imperfect tools like you and me and all of us, he uses imperfect tools every day and still brings about perfect results. Isn't he amazing? Man. And so that's what God does. 
Also in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 9, the um, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. You know, when you confuse who's the tool and who's the hand, when you confuse who's the potter and who's the pot, you know, when you lose that perspective, then you start to think that you know more than him. And you start to argue with him. And you start to tell God what he doesn't know and why he's wrong and why you know better. And then the Bible says, woe. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? You know? Does the clay ever complain when it's being spun on the wheel there and grumble about this? And what are you doing? You're squeezing too hard or, or you know, I don't want to be this shape. I'm, I'm short and fat and I want to be tall and skinny. And, and, and just, you're not happy with what the... I'm not looking at anybody. With what the... Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you're making say, he has no hands? You know, I think you should make me with hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? You know, on the night of conception, does the, does the new baby complain to the father and mother? To a woman? To what are you giving birth? So, I mean, they'd be like arguing with a father on conception night and arguing with the mother on the, on the birthday. That doesn't happen, right? So why do we, as creatures, tell our Creator that He doesn't know what He's doing? All right. So Jesus is infinitely more worthy, not because He was more faithful, but on a scale of the builder is more worthy than the house. The builder is more worthy than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Okay, verse 4 kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? It's kind of a no-brainer. Every house is built by someone. <laughs> I have yet to see a house that built itself. You never walk down the street and go, oh, wow, that just happened, huh? Right? It doesn't happen. Things that get built have a builder. That's why intelligent design makes sense and evolution doesn't. That's why, you know, stuff just doesn't happen. And uh, this, uh, this should be obvious. And again... My slides are all coming up at once here. No contingent thing creates or builds itself. If it's a contingent thing, that's everything but God, okay? No contingent thing creates or builds itself. Only God is absolute being. Only God is pure actuality. Is the, he's the only I am there is. There is no other I am. And then sometimes, too, you talk to atheists, you talk to skeptics, God-haters and whatever, and they don't like, in the beginning, God. The idea that God existed before anything else, to be in the beginning, to be the subject of a verb to do something, to create, in the beginning, God created, that demands that God pre-exists everything else. Pre-exists creation, pre-exists beginning. And then they get real snooty, and they say, well, who made God then? Hello, you missed the point, okay? Uncreated, the uncaused caused, the uncreated creator, the eternal I am. That's our God. 
And if you've got some other imagination of what you think God's about, read the Bible more. Because God describes himself in this way. Pure actuality. And this is the call of Moses in Exodus 3.14. This is the I am. And this is, amazingly enough, at the exodus of Israel. See, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, knew Yahweh. But they never knew that Yahweh, the significance of Yahweh, was the concept of I am. That behind Yahweh is Eye. Behind Yahweh is I am. And so although the patriarchs knew Yahweh as a name, they knew that Yahweh Elohim was the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth. Yahweh Elohim is the El Shaddai, the Almighty. It was not until Moses in his face-to-face intimacy with God was given that significance. That Yahweh becomes the memorial name for Eye, for I am. And the uh, truth of God as the I am comes out there. So if you want some verses on that, you can use this, okay? Um, and this is, I think, fundamental. Every house is built by something, but the builder of all things is God. In other words, everything but God comes from God. <laughs> and God's the only one that has no source because He is. You've just got to be clear on that. Um, yeah, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God, the uncaused cause, the original source. So, uh, are we familiar with these? Exodus 3.14. Have we had a Christmas message yet? I'm still working on it. All right. In any event, Exodus 3.14. Exodus has a Christmas message, right? You got baby Moses, the attempt to kill the babies. Why were they killing all the firstborn sons? Girls could live, but not boys. Anyway, same thing happened in Jesus' day. Anyway, I'm not going to get to that. How about Exodus chapter 3, verse 14? Um, Moses says to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. They may say to me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is Eye, the I am. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, my memorial name to all generations. And so Yahweh is known now by the memorial name to represent the Eye, the I am that delivers them. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, before time, during time, after time. Are we good with that? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God. He is I am. He is the Son of God. This is, this is Him. Uh, Revelation 1, 8. Remember, we have an upcoming homiletics class where we're going to teach you don't rush at the end. And uh, I'm trying to model that by not rushing at the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. 
before time, during time, after time, always is, always was, always will be the eternal, self-existent God. And then the conclusion to Jude, Jude 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a definition. Isn't that beautiful? Here's a marvelous verse that defines eternity past, temporal present, eternity future. That boundary of time that is every moment between the alpha moment and the omega moment. And God gets all the glory. Alpha to omega, before all time, now and forever. Amen. So God's ultimate capacity for building and growth puts boasting in perspective. Okay? God's ultimate capacity for building and growth puts boasting in perspective. When you stop and realize, hey, the builder of all things is God, then you stop boasting. You say, look, I'm just a tool. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. And you say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I do what I do. God handles the results. God's in charge. And it puts all other things in perspective. It keeps us from boasting about ourselves, right? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. For by grace, you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the work of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast, right? God has not designed a plan whereby we get to boast about us. That's true for salvation. That's true for experience. We don't, we're not boasting in us. We're boasting in the Lord. True for our salvation. True for our experience. So God's ultimate capacity for building and growth puts boasting in perspective. I'm no longer limited to what I think I can handle. I'm no longer limited to the kind of pastor I think I can be, the kind of husband I think I can be, the kind of uh, whatever. I'm no longer uh, fearful and self-limiting about, well, you know, can't really afford this. My father can. (laughs) All right. We're looking at some housing options. Well, what can we afford? What can my father afford? Ask the right question. Let's pray about it. Okay. Everything is put into perspective. It removes relative glory from his servants. It removes the relative glory in the Jesus-Moses contrast. It removes the relative glory in the Paul-Apollos-Cephas contrast. When uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, the Corinthians are walked through this whole thing. Know what I'm talking about? 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 10, and then we'll have to wrap up. See, in, in, in the Corinthians were all schismatic. They were all fighting about the camp they were in. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus, right? And that fourth group was no better than the other group. They were just as divisive and just as ugly. Um, And so Paul asks here, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So what are you boasting about? Paul did his job, Apollos did his job, Cephas did his job. By the grace of God, this is what God's doing. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Remember, the builder of all things is God. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, we, can, we have this as an attitude, but guess what? That does not remove God's expectations for our faithfulness. 
Moses was still faithful. Paul was still faithful. We want to be faithful. It is required of a steward to be found faithful. Just because God's doing the work does, is no license or excuse for us to get lazy, for us to just wing it or say, oh, well, hey, you know, God's doing the work anyway. No, 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 no. When you truly understand the grace of God, you'd be the hardest working grace believer out there. The legalist is the one that gets prideful and thinks, hey, I've done enough, and he starts to rest on his laurels. The legalist is the lazy guy. A grace guy never stops. Grace guy just keeps more and more and more. This does not remove God's expectation for our faithfulness, as Paul says here. And so, um, Paul says he labored harder than all the rest of them put together related to that. I'm going to have to wrap it up with this. We'll come back because we've got Moses' faithfulness being historically unparalleled and then um, Christ's faithfulness. And then what is our present faithfulness? How do we serve in that house? We are the house, okay? So it's not about being saved. It's about priestly function. It's about us as a temple. And it's about what disqualifies us from serving in our priestly function. Not losing salvation and going to hell, but being disqualified from the faith rest life whereby we can't operate in our priestly function. We can't operate as the house of God, as the temple of God. That's the, the dire warning that's being given here to the, uh, to the Hebrews. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your son, Father, presently being faithful. And I rejoice, Father, over the priesthood we have um, in him. The fact that we enter within the veil that is his flesh. The fact that we have confidence to stand before you. And we don't just come to a mercy seat, Father. Jesus is our mercy seat. We stand before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And Father, I just thank you that the book of Hebrews is teaching us how to be active in our priesthood, how to be active in all these things, serving with our great high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Father, as we walk with him and as we consider his faithfulness, we consider our own faithfulness, Father, day by day, moment by moment, keep us faithful. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.